Welcome to the Beer Makes History podcast presented by Yield Tavern Tours. This 10-episode series explores Boston during the American Revolution and beer's role in all of it. I'm Brooke, one of your hosts. I have a PhD in American history, I founded Yield Tavern Tours, and I'm an author and beer lover. In each episode, we pair a beer with our history, and that's where my co-host comes in. I'm Kristen. I'm a PhD student in history, a tour guide for Yield Tavern Tours, and I'll be talking about the beer pairings in each episode, which means I'll be drinking a lot for research. So join us as beer makes history. It's episode four. We're going to talk about Boston from 1767 to 1768 and a new round of British taxes. Our key player is John Hancock, one of my absolute favorites. We've got a unique beer for this episode. So Kristen, let's get to that. Our beer today is Jack's Abbey Lager Wine. Jack's Abbey is from Framingham, Massachusetts. This is another half liter bottle and it's 13.5%, you guys. Dang! You wanna open that up, bro? Yes. Before we pop this, we wanna thank Craft Beer Cellar for providing us with this bottle. We love them. Okay. Oh! <laughs> Got a little on our notes. A little residual <laughs> spray here. I'm gonna pour this. So, lager wine is not actually a wine, Kristen? Correct. This is a barley wine, which is a type of beer. The word, oh. yeah, the word wine is used because it has the strength of a wine, 13.5%. Oh. So they called it a, you know, a wine back when they invented these recipes because that's actually what they were trying to emulate. But more on that later, we are going to try this puppy. Holy cow, I smell it. From- yes. Oh, and it's worth mentioning, we chose this barley wine, lager wine, because uh, we talk about wine in this episode. So that's going to be the connection. It's a, it's a really fun episode. So with that, huzzah! Huzzah! Whew. I smell. It's the- very pungent. So this is really malty, really grainy. I feel like I can taste. Yes. So so it is barley, but because Jack's Abbey only makes lagers, that's something that the brewery does. They name it a lager wine instead of, instead of a barley see. wine. But I feel like I can really smell the barleys and the grains. This is aged on barrels. Wait, Kristen, before you go on, you're not sneaking any chocolate in for your tasting notes, are you? <laughs> I'm not sharing with me? No, I have t- okay, all right, <laughs> no tasting. All right. All right. Okay, to our okay. to our alcohol today, um, so this will smell really sweet, and you get a lot of yeah. these syrup flavors yes. initially, right after you get past some of the barley. So I'm smelling dark fruits. Think plums, figs, things yes, like that. Yes, figs. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can get some figs in there. And, and it is sort of syrupy, but then it really ends on the back end with a lot of alcohol. Yes. That's where I can tell, like, fire on your tongue when you take a shot of something. I kind of have that as a finish here. Yeah, not that strong for me, but yeah, you can tell you're drinking alcohol. Ooh. It's a really, I say this every time, but it's a really interesting beer. We choose our beers well for this podcast, but this is quite a different and unique taste. Yeah. So it says bourbon barrel aged Um, on it, Um, but I taste a lot of bourbon in that too, which is maybe that spirit that I was tasting. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out, it's really bubbling. I mean, it is just effervescent. It is just doing its thing, those little bubbles. Which is probably why we smelt it so much at the beginning. Okay. Science, I guess. (laughs) 
Um, so another reason we picked this, besides its connection to wine later in the episode, is this is one of the oldest, quote unquote, modern styles of beer, beer made in the same way that we make it now. It began to be produced in 15th century Britain, but it's really expensive to make because you have to you know, age it and it's got a lot of alcohol. So people weren't buying it. It wasn't that popular until about the 18th century and the time period we're talking about today when yeah. the British aristocracy started drinking this because for a variety of reasons, some of which were war with France and other importation issues, they weren't able to get their wine from continental Europe. So instead, they tried to make wine with whatever they had in Britain, which was not grapes. So they used their their barley and their beer making tools to make something that resembled wine, hence barley wine. Great. So while we're talking about the colonies today, you can imagine over the pond, the British aristocracy (laughs) drinking this. And I've actually never had a barley wine. So I'm super excited. Have you? No, I've never had a barley wine either. So that's going to be a great accompaniment for today. I'm excited about that. And then I'm also excited about what we're talking about today. I already mentioned I love John Hancock and he's our key player today. But we also have a really unique mob coming that actually matches our unique beer today. So stay with us. In the last episode, Boston's rebels violently protested the Stamp Act, which ultimately led other colonies to rebel against their Stamp Act officials. Parliament repealed the Stamp Act in 1766, but also passed the Declaratory Act, which was a sad attempt to save face, claiming that they had the right to tax the colonies at any time. Despite the problems Parliament had had with taxing the North American colonies, Parliament just couldn't seem to leave well enough alone. In 1767, Parliament passed a new round of taxes, Kristen. (sighs) I know, it's ridiculous. The Townshend duties, named after Charles Townshend, the member of Parliament who proposed the plan, required colonists to pay taxes on imported British goods, including tea, glass, paper, and clothing. These duties were passed for the same reasons that the sugar and stamp acts had been, to pay for the cost of running the North American empire. As will be no surprise, Massachusetts wasted little time opposing the Townshend duties, with the House of Representatives petitioning King George III for their repeal. James Otis, you guys remember him, he's our key player from episode two. Woo-woo. He helped draft this petition, which claimed that the colonists could no longer be considered free if Parliament continued to take their property, in this case their money, without representing them in the government. There's that idea of no taxation without representation again. Right. And the House of Representatives asked, quote, is there any real difference between this act and the Stamp Act? They thought not. (laughs) The House accused the Townshend duties of being, quote, burdensome to trade, ruinous to the nation. These are strong words, but the Massachusetts House of Representatives didn't stop there. They took their protest to the next level by sending a letter to other North American colonies asking them to join Massachusetts in opposing the Townshend duties by boycotting British goods. This letter infuriated the crown, as you can imagine. (laughs) It became known as the circular letter, and it requested that the boycott be in effect until the Townshend duties were repealed. 
Lord Hillsborough, the Secretary of State to the colonies, spoke on behalf of King George III and those in London and demanded that the House of Representatives, quote, immediately exert your utmost influence to defeat this flagacious attempt to disturb the public peace, Woo. end quote. Translation, knock it off, Boston. You know what else is disturbing the peace, Brooke? <laughs> what? <laughs> the smell of this barley wine. It is taking up the whole room. It's very potent. This yes. aroma is massively big. Okay, we're going to fight through it. I'm going to take another sip, though. Okay. The House decided to vote about whether or not to rescind the letter. Voting on the issue showed an attempt to operate within the confines of the British government. And Governor Bernard hoped his assembly wouldn't let him down. Is he going to be let down? You know it. In June 1768, the House of Representatives voted. In an overwhelming majority of 92 to 17, the legislature refused to give in to the king and voted not to recall the circular letter. Huzzah! That it, very huzzah-worthy. The men who voted not to rescind became known as the Glorious 92 and were celebrated in print and silver. How are they celebrated in silver, you ask? Well, Paul Revere created a punch bowl honoring the men and this moment. This bowl still exists today. It's owned by the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, the MFA. And 15 members of the Sons of Liberty hired Revere to make this bowl. Yeah. So it was a group effort. And their names are engraved all around the top of the bowl. It's really cool because at the museum, you can view the art on all sides. It's in a glass case. So yes. you can walk around the punch bowl, imagining that they were celebrating this important moment. Yes. And Revere's craftsmanship is just perfectly on display. And the bowl is also really crowded with engravings. They, they celebrate a lot on this bowl. We also love bowls of this size because they'd often be used as a receptacle for punch, Woo. which was often made with rum, tea, and spices, and it'd be passed around from man to man to drink out of. So that's a double huzzah. Communal huzzah. <laughs> so now the House has to tell Bernard why they voted not to rescind. Their letter is an absolutely masterful piece of politics and trolling. It explains their political position, argued for the importance of protecting their rights as British subjects, and insulted the governor. Everything necessary after such a controversial decision. The House said it had practical reasons not to rescind it, and this is my favorite. Simply put, the ideas in the circular letter are already circulating in North America, so what's the point in retracting? They also claimed that it was a, quote, native, inherent, and indefeasible right of British subjects to petition the king with their grievances, provided that they do so in a dutiful way, quote, without tumult, disorder, or confusion. Protesting without tumult or disorder is hilarious, (laughs) considering the way that Boston rebels have reacted thus far to the Stamp Act and other things in our recent episode. Yeah, it's more than slightly hypocritical. That's why I love it. The House then claimed that they were committed to their decision not to rescind, as they had been guided by a, quote, clear and determined sense of duty to God, to our king, our country, and our latest posterity, end quote. Here comes the kicker. The House then attacked Bernard and, quote, humbly prays that in the future, Bernard, quote, may be influenced by the same principles, end quote, as those of the Massachusetts legislator. Burn. That's that's amazing. (laughs) Serious burn. The circular letter doesn't stop the Townshend duties, though, of course. Parliament is determined that the colonists pay a tax. 
and they'd learned something from the Stamp Act, believe it or not. So Parliament this time headquarters new customs officials in Boston to enforce the tax. I'm sure those guys are going to be really well liked. Oh, um, the men sent to enforce the duties are so punchable, Kristen. <laughs> they are earnestly patrolling the harbors. They're eager to stop and search any vessel. And despite these new customs officials' strength in numbers, they found it difficult to do their jobs in Boston. They were frequently harassed by townspeople. And I've got a story that perfectly demonstrates how difficult they made it for customs officials to do their work. It happened in the summer of 1768 as rebels sought to defend the honor of one of the richest and most popular men in town, John Hancock, our key player today. Let's raise our barley wine to John. Good idea. He'd love that. Cheers. While Hancock is most famous for being the first and largest signatory of the Declaration of Independence, there's a lot more to him than that. When we meet him here in 1768, he is 31 years of age. Young. And already the wealthiest man in Boston. John Hancock came into his money through an inheritance, but he was not born into a wealthy family. John's father died when John was a young boy, and John's uncle, Thomas, was a self-made man who'd created a massive shipping house in Boston called the House of Hancock. I love that. Yes, the House of Hancock. It's amazing. Sounds medieval or something. Um, Colonial, if you will. Sure. So Thomas and his wife, Lydia, were childless, and they asked John's mother if they could raise him as their own, where he would live a life of privilege. John's mother agreed, and young John literally moved on up to the top of Beacon Hill at his uncle's house. John would attend the most prestigious schools, that'd be Boston Latin and then Harvard College, and then work for his uncle's business until Thomas passed away. This is astounding. On the day of his uncle's death, John became the wealthiest man in Boston, head of the House of Hancock, and one of the largest employers in Massachusetts. Hancock loved to show off his wealth. He imported the finest fashions from London and paraded around Boston with gilded buttons, embroidered jackets, and large wigs. He had a thin frame and he wore his clothing well. When Hancock was named captain of an honorary militia in Boston, he hired his tailor in London to design an elaborate new uniform for his position. He then purchased similar uniforms for every man in the militia. Whoa. Um, With wealth and an attitude like that he sounds more like a Thomas Hutchinson or a loyalist. Yeah, it's a good point. He did waffle a bit between sides, Hancock did, but he liked to be admired by the masses. And at this time, the vocal masses in Boston were often rebels. He was also generous to Bostonians, which didn't hurt his popularity. He donated Bibles or pews to needy churches. He installed walkways on Boston Common so people weren't schlepping through the mud or dust depending on the season. And he gave wood to the poor so they could keep warm in the winter. And let us not forget, from the last episode, he also bought alcohol for Boston during celebrations. (laughs) This popularity led Hancock to frequently win elections, no surprise. He was consistently the top vote getter for the Massachusetts General Court, which is the legislature, and town councils. You know, Brooke, you buy me beer once and I like you. You throw a big party in the firework (laughs) display. You got my Um, vote. You got my vote. (laughs) With credentials like this, it's really no surprise that the customs officers in Boston would target Hancock and his business. We'll talk about the wild standoff between Hancock and them after this short break. 
If you're like us and you love history and beer, join Yule Tavern Tours when you're in Boston. We see many of the historic sites mentioned in this podcast and we drink beer at historic taverns along the way. Whether you're native to Boston or visiting for the first time, you'll learn something new and have so much fun doing it. So Kristen, I promised you a standoff and here's how it goes. Like any good rebel and businessman, Hancock was a frequent smuggler. Smugglers are a good start to a standoff. (laughs) Yeah, and he wasn't alone in being a smuggler. Most merchants at this time did smuggle. And if you want a refresher on that, you can listen to our first episode when we talk about the smugglers. Hancock didn't want any customs officials snooping into his business, even with the new Townshend duties in force. In April 1768, one of Hancock's ships called Lydia, that's his aunt's name, landed in Boston. Two customs agents went to inspect the cargo, but Hancock dismissed them. Later that night, one of the customs officials, a guy named Owen Richards, snuck onto Hancock's ship to see the goods he was sure Hancock was hiding, not claiming, and not paying his taxes on. While he was snooping on board Lydia, Hancock and several of his employees caught the customs official red-handed. Yikes. And Hancock and his lackeys demanded to see Richard's search warrant. When he wasn't able to produce one, Hancock's men grabbed him and dangled him over the side of the ship, threatening to drop him into the harbor until he admitted that he had no business being on the ship. Double yikes. (laughs) A humiliated Richard's conceded and then was released. He had no business being on the ship at that hour, but this incident set a dangerous precedent. We've said that before. We're going to keep saying that on this podcast. (laughs) The event heightened Hancock's status as a champion of the people, but the British were furious. A month later, on May 9th, 1768, customs officials saw an opportunity to get even. One of Hancock's ships, this one called Liberty, docked in Boston at Hancock's Wharf around sunset, which was too late to check in with the customs office. The timing was fortunate for Hancock because his ship was stocked with Madeira, and he had no intention of paying taxes on the entire shipment. As an important aside... Hancock loved drinking and importing Madeira. He wrote to one of his London agents that he wanted, quote, the very best Madeira for my own table. I don't stand at any price. Let it be good. I like a rich wine. Uh, He would be so fun to party with. Super fun. Can I have a brief aside about Madeira? Because it's a really underrated drink that I want more people to know about. This is actually a wine. Unlike the barley (laughs) wine, Madeira comes from the Portuguese islands of the same name. Madeira! Yes. So this was a popular port for ships heading to the New World since it was along a primary current route. Now, to keep the wine from spoiling, because this is a long journey across the Atlantic and they have a lot of stops to make, the people in Madeira would add a spirit, like rum or something high in alcohol content. Mm -hmm. And this ends up creating a fortified wine. So a wine you would often have after dinner today in in 2019 (laughs) when we're not drinking it as ubiquitously as Hancock. Madeira was a favorite of many colonial leaders and was even used to toast the Declaration of Independence. Huzzah! How fun. So the Declaration of Independence brings us back to Hancock. What (laughs) happens next in this story? So at this point in 1768, we've got Madeira on Hancock's ships and Hancock's employees wait until night to illegally unload the majority of the wine before the customs officials could find and tax 
the wine. The next morning, customs officials boarded Liberty and found only a tiny amount of wine on board. Hancock paid a minuscule amount of customs on this cargo, equal to having his ship at less than a quarter capacity. A seasoned merchant like Hancock wouldn't sail with a nearly empty ship. The profits would be minimal, if any. And we know he wanted all of the Madeira, not one-fourth ship of Madeira. (laughs) He likes a rich wine. (laughs) So the customs officials knew they'd been cheated. How embarrassing for them, especially when they hoped this was their chance to finally catch Hancock. Some questionable evidence against Hancock turned up a few weeks later. Hmm, it's very suspicious here. A man who had been on board Liberty on May 9th came forward and said that when he would not participate in the illegal unloading of the wine, he was detained in one of the ship's cabins. So he's being a snitch. (laughs) By the way, this snitch's story is incredible, but the British now had something they could use to prosecute and punish Hancock. They're going to go after his liberty. Two customs officers, remember how popular these guys are, Joseph Harrison and Benjamin Hallowell. Super punchable. (laughs) And nearly 50 soldiers went to Hancock's wharf and declared Hancock's ship and all of its cargo to be property of the crown. They towed Liberty through the harbor and out to the 50-gun British man-of-war Romney, where it was to be guarded by the British. The seizure of Liberty sent Boston's rebels into a rage, as you can imagine. They love Hancock and they hate the British, so it's a perfect combo. A crowd formed down at the wharf while the Liberty was being hauled away. You recall that the men who worked down on the docks were tough men, used to hard physical labor. As the customs officials seized Hancock's ship, 500 men from the docks pelted them with rocks, bricks, and stones, Mm. even trying to reach Romney with these weapons. The mob then grabbed Harrison and Hollowell and beat them up, leaving them with many wounds and bruises, according to Governor Bernard. That is a lot, Brooke. A lot of people throwing (laughs) a lot of things. Are they really going to escalate from here? Yep. Okay. Deep breath here. (laughs) The mob members then dragged a boat owned by Harrison out of the harbor water. They lugged it through the streets of Boston about a half a mile. They then hauled the barge up to Boston Common and set the boat on fire. It's like a mix of mob and CrossFit and pyromania. (laughs) It's such creativity and determination. Things in Boston are now so intense that Governor Bernard warned Harrison and Hallowell. Totally sounds like a law firm. (laughs) It does. That he could not protect them. So the two men hid out on Castle Island a few miles from Boston. In a newspaper article written by Samuel Adams, he justified this mob activity. No surprise there. He asked rhetorically, quote, Can anyone be surprised that when property was violently seized under a pretense of law, that such ill time, violent and unheard of proceedings should excite the resentment of even the better sort of people in town? End quote. This response echoed the Stamp Act rights against Oliver, and that's from episode two, when the mob was an accepted institution committed to righting the wrongs inflicted by the British. British customs officers were eager to bring smuggling charges against Hancock. General Thomas Gage, commander of all British forces in North America, you've heard his name before, he hoped that by putting Hancock on trial, it will, quote, encourage the civil officers of every degree to do their duty without fear and to curb effectually the licentious and seditious spirit which has so long prevailed this place, this place being Boston. No less than the ability of future customs officials' work 
Burke was on trial. Fortunately for Hancock, he had a motivated attorney named John Adams. Who liked to drink a lot of Madeira, by the way, which he claimed didn't give him a hangover. Oh, God. Adams is such a liar. (laughs) At the core of the case was whether Hancock, as the man in charge of his employees, knew that they had illegally unloaded wine and had helped to organize it. John Adams claimed that Hancock, quote, may be asleep in his bed and not so much as know or dream that anybody is unshipping and landing his wines, end quote. Come on. But I have to say, he's a defense attorney. This is a good strategy. It's a he good, could be at home sleeping. It's true. But Hancock must have known about his employees' actions and had likely directed it many times before. Yet the British had a difficult time proving that. The case dragged on for months and they eventually had to drop the charges. Hancock had smuggled in goods, though. We know that. But the customs officials weren't patient or smart enough to prove it. Such concessions continued to empower the rebels. Now, Governor Francis Bernard is furious that Hancock had his charges dropped, and so he's scheming for how to finally control Boston. His idea is truly, without exaggeration, a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad idea. It's so bad, but we'll have beer to help get us through the episode. Per usual, I'll let you know what we're drinking at the end of this episode, but since this was the first time either of us had had a barley wine, why don't we just take a couple seconds to talk about how do we feel it was so fun to try a beer style that i'd never had before i would say it's a pretty sweet tasting beer which isn't my first pick but glad to try it yeah i didn't mind it as a sipper i'm not sure that i would get it to imbibe on regularly but i'm with you i don't often meet new beer styles so this was super fun the vibes i'm actually getting now that i've had some time with this beer too i think this would be delicious in a craft cocktail, Mm. right? You mentioned effervescence earlier, and I think the texture would really work well with a little bit of bubbles. So those of you that went out and got a barley wine to drink with us, thank you for sharing in this experience and stay tuned. If, as you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking you'd like to learn more about this subject, we have a couple easy suggestions. The podcast is based on a book I wrote called Boston in the American Revolution, A Town Versus an Empire. It's a really accessible read and also features key players, so you'll feel right at home reading it. Kristen and I are also part of a fabulous team of historian tour guides for Yield Tavern Tours. So please join one of our tours for local craft beers, talk of revolutionary Boston, and seeing historic sites along Boston's Freedom Trail. We also have short videos on Yield Tavern Tours' website called History in a Minute. They feature lots of the people and historic sites we mentioned today and throughout this podcast. We'll link to all of those in the show notes. Our beer for next week will be from Castle Island Brewing called Keeper. The actual Castle Island will come into play in next week's episode. And if you're wondering who our key player will be, his name is synonymous. Today. Today in Boston in particular with one theme of our podcast, Hint Beer. (laughs) So see you next time when beer makes history.